Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, for the last two months, we have been talking about our life with Jesus, and I hope that you have been here, tuned in online, um, and really dug into that whole concept. Again, the whole reason we took a pause from our Acts sermon series was because this is not just something important, but foundational to our life and to our ministry, this intentional and mutual relationship that we're called to with Christ whereby we grow in both our understanding and experience of his love, whereby we grow in our desire to be obedient to him and to be transformed by him, and also as we grow in our desire to be on mission with him. And so I don't want us to forget that just because we move back into our Acts sermon series. In fact, everything that we read through Acts, everything we study in any passage of Scripture should be filtered through that lens, should be built on that foundation. We cannot look at what it means to live out the Scripture's implications in our life apart from this life with Jesus that we're called to. And so I would encourage you to reflect on the many things that we've talked about together, the many passages of Scripture we've looked at, and look at everything we do together going forward through that lens. But I would also encourage you heartily to do all that you can to nurture that relationship with God, that life with Jesus, through prayer, Bible reading, service, and in any other way you could lean into him, praying continually and building up your relationship. We are going to be entering back into our Acts sermon series, and so we have been in it for a while, but it's been two months since we have. So let me remind you of just some of the key points that we've looked at uh, so far in the first 15 chapters of Acts that we've looked at. Um, We saw at the very beginning Jesus' ascension to the Father. He's already died. He has risen from the dead. He's been with his disciples now for a period of 40 days, continually teaching them about the kingdom of God. And before he goes to the Father, he gives them this important commission. We see it in Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so What they had wanted to know was, Jesus, now that you've died and rose again, now that you've come to Jerusalem, now that all these things have happened, these prophecies fulfilled, are you going to go ahead and set up your kingdom? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know when that's going to take place, but here's what you're going to do. And in fact, what started with the first disciples and continued for 2,000 years is in fact the building up of the kingdom as more and more people are rescued out of the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God in preparation for Jesus' second coming. We see that the gospel started in Jerusalem, just as Jesus said it would. In fact, they, they proclaimed the gospel at the temple. The Holy Spirit descended on them and they proclaimed it boldly. They performed miracles demonstrating the truth of the gospel message and many Jewish people came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And then persecution came against the church. And why did God allow this persecution? I'm sure they were wondering that. Jesus had just come. He did this. He called us to be his people. We're here proclaiming thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus. Why would God allow this persecution to come against us? Because what happened as a result? 
They ran, they fled for their lives to all different parts of Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And as they went, they took the gospel with them. And the gospel began to spread more and more. And interestingly, again, it started among Jewish people, thousands of Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus. But then something happened. A transition took place, something new, as even the Gentiles began to respond to the gospel. In fact, we even saw Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey going through these Greek city-states, proclaiming the gospel, first in the synagogues to the Jews, but then in, the, in, in anywhere they could with whoever they could reach, and an amazing amount of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were believing the gospel and giving their life to the Lord. And this was amazing. Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, which was their sending church, their sending community. And when they celebrated together what God was doing, even among the Gentiles, drawing all kinds of people to himself. What an amazing thing. And then what we saw was this, though. And there were some in the church among the Jewish believers who didn't like this idea of Gentiles coming in apart from entering in through Judaism. And so the question was, can these Gentile people just believe on the basis of grace through faith? Or did they have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to continue on in their salvation? And this matter was discussed in Jerusalem among the apostles and the church leaders. And it was determined that salvation is not on the basis of your obedience or disobedience to the law, but on grace through faith by what Jesus was willing to do on the cross, dying to pay for sins and rising again to secure our right standing before God. And so it's here as we enter into Paul's second missionary journey, as he goes out again, first among those same city-states he visited before, to minister to those people that he had first made, you know, led to faith and discipled. And it's here where we pick up. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 starting in the first verse. Acts chapter 16, starting in the first verse. For those of you who don't have a Bible with you, it will be up on the screen. But we are in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Paul came to Derb and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Well, there's some interesting things here in light of what I just explained in terms of what we've seen thus far, and we're going to see that together in just a few moments. But let's just take a look at what's happening here. Again, this is Paul's second missionary journey. He had one wonderfully successful journey. And he went out again, this time without Barnabas. And he started off by going to the, the communities, the cities, the churches that he had uh, been at the first time uh, that he was on his missionary journey. And 
we see a new person here. We see something new. We see this person, Timothy, who Paul is asking to come along with him. And so Timothy is somebody who Paul had ministered to in his first time around. When he first came to the city, this is somebody who he had invested in, somebody who he had discipled. In fact, when we look at the correspondence between Paul and Timothy, even in Paul's letters, we see a deep sense of uh, Paul's love for Timothy. Paul's investing in Timothy as a disciple, considering him even a son. And so we see this relationship that they have together. And so Paul is revisiting him and uh, continuing to sow into him. But not just that, but now recognizing a call on Timothy's life and inviting him along as he continues on in his second missionary journey. We have a little bit of information here about Timothy. One is this, that his, his mother was Jewish and a believer in Jesus, but his father wasn't. His father wasn't even Jewish. His father was a Gentile, a Greek person. And so we have this mixed marriage, and Timothy uh, must have been coming up, at least in some way, as a Greek because he himself was not circumcised. Paul took Timothy along with him, and we know from Paul's letters that Timothy had an important ministry. In fact, there's two epistles with his name on it in our New Testament. And yet the most peculiar thing to know about Timothy is this, that Paul circumcised him before taking him along. In fact, it's interesting because the passage describes one theme of Paul's ministry as he's going around is to go back to all of these churches of Gentiles, all these new believers in Christ and say, don't worry, you don't have to commit yourself to the law of Moses in order to be a Christian. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved or continue on in your salvation. That's one of the themes that we see here in our verses that Paul was doing in his ministry. So the question remains, if Paul's, part of Paul's missions is to explain that they don't have to follow the law, they don't have to be circumcised, then why is he circumcising Timothy before taking him with it? Doesn't that seem weird? You know, in our Bible study, we often have a time for observations. If you come to Alliance Men or you come to Sunday School, one of the first thing I ask is, what observations stand out to you? What questions do you have of the text? This should have been a big red flag. Why on earth is he circumcising Timothy when he just says it's not necessary? And so this is something we're going to take a look at together. Remember, this was the ruling of the Jerusalem Council that Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised in order to be saved or maintain their salvation. So why then did Paul circumcise Timothy? And I think the answer is right here in verse 3, if you have your Bible still open. It says, Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay. So we see that people in this area, the Jewish people in this area, knew Timothy and knew Timothy's particular situation. And Paul, one of the things we think about is he's, this, he's an apostle to the Gentiles. But if you pay attention throughout Paul's entire ministry, every city he visits, he doesn't go first to the Gentiles. He goes first to the Jews. He stops off in the synagogue where he's often invited to speak. And he boldly proclaims the gospel, demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, while he's an apostle to the Gentiles, he had a powerful ministry to the Jews, always, including in the towns that he's visiting here. 
And Timothy was Jewish. Because in that culture, in that day, it was understood that if your mother was Jewish, even if your father was not, that you are a Jewish person. And as a Jewish person, you're expected to be under the law and have at least received a circumcision. Because circumcision is a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And that is something that all Abraham's descendants are expected to have in order to be a part of that community, that covenant people in Abraham, in God. But here's the thing, in that day, in that culture, because Timothy was viewed as a Jewish person because of his mother, by not being circumcised, he was considered an apostate Jew. That means a Jew who was rebelling against the covenant, who had no part in the covenant of God because he had not been circumcised. And Paul could not have had an effective ministry in any of the towns that he went to among the Jewish people if he was traveling with a companion who was an apostate Jew. He could not travel with Timothy not being circumcised and yet being Jewish and have any kind of uh, platform with which to speak to any of the Jewish people that he was called to minister to. And so Timothy's circumcision wasn't about obedience to the law. It wasn't about receiving salvation. It wasn't about maintaining salvation. It was about doing whatever it takes in order to be effective in the ministry that God had called him to. It was about doing whatever it takes to avoid obstacles to the gospel along the way. And this was Timothy's, I mean, Timothy wasn't just grabbed and tied up and this was done to him. This was something that Timothy must have been willing to enter into to step into this calling that God had for him. He was willing to do whatever it takes. Now, for those of you who can imagine that, even in part, in your mind, you could think, wow, that man sacrificed a whole lot more than I'd be willing to sacrifice. That's painful. And yet Timothy was willing to do whatever it takes. You know, this was Paul's philosophy as well, isn't it? If you've read through Acts, if you've read through the epistles, you know that Paul went through a whole lot for the gospel. He was constantly suffering for the sake of the gospel, not because he liked to receive suffering, but because he was willing to do whatever it takes that the gospel may go forward and people may be redeemed through it. In fact, we see this as Paul recounts his own life and his own ministry. He says this in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. It'll be up on the screen. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. You know, Paul was a chameleon. Paul adapted his life and his ministry to fit the needs of those he was proclaiming the gospel to. We had a good discussion about this in our Sunday school class this morning, just to draw out some of the features here. You know, Paul is 
proclaiming in several different places throughout the New Testament that we're no longer under the law, right? That's that, that Gentiles uh, are saved by grace through faith, and they don't need it. In fact, we even see that the Jewish people are saved by grace through faith, not by their obedience to the law. And yet, even being a proponent of this freedom in Christ, here is Paul uh, having to take on some of those requirements of the law as he's engaging with non-Christian Jewish people for the sake of the gospel. He does as they do, even if he no longer does in certain respects. Even if he's allowed to eat whatever food he wants and not keep kosher, he's going to keep kosher when he's reaching out to Jewish people. Even if things are done differently now in his life normally, he's going to adapt his life to those Jewish people he's ministering to. You know, growing up, not just as a Jewish person from his earliest age, but in an entire lineage of people who embraced God's law and lived a certain way and lived separated out from the Gentiles, when Paul went to reach out to the Gentiles, he had to eat food he was not comfortable eating. He had to do things differently than he normally would do. Before his time in Christ, he would never have even entered into a, uh, a Gentile home, and yet now he's willing to do that and adapt and even be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. Because it's not about him and his comfort. It's about them and making sure they have every opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. This is written to the Corinthians, this letter. And Corinth is an interesting place. Corinth is like your New York City, your Manhattan. He's like, it's like Los Angeles. You think of your biggest city, melting pot, full of diversity, not just people all over from the country, but from all over the world descending there. Think of the diversity of languages and cultures and, and everything else you could possibly imagine. And that is a good picture of Corinth. And yet in Corinth, there's this social structure, this different stratas, if you will, and people who were blue-collar workers were often looked down upon by those affluent in the city. And Paul, when he came, decided that he was going to take skills that he had learned along the way. Instead of receiving payment from the church for his time of ministry, he's going to set up shop in the marketplace, and he's going to be a tent maker. He's going to be a leather worker. He's going to be a blue-collar worker. And in fact, we see in the text that there had to be some kind of attention there because the people in the church, probably the more affluent Christians in Corinth, did not like this because Paul is lowering himself to this level. Why would Paul do that? He says, to those who are weak, I became weak to win the weak. Can you imagine as Paul's out there on the in the marketplace, sweating up a storm, making his leather goods and talking to customers, how many relationships he built, how many times he was able to proclaim the gospel right in the center of town, right in the shadow of these pagan temples. And Paul was able to make a difference for the gospel because he was willing to adapt to reach those who God had called him to reach. He was willing to do whatever it takes. You know, the mission is so important that there's really no room for self in it. And Timothy recognized that. Paul recognized that. We're not working for ourselves for now. 
We're working for God. It's all about Jesus. And if we remember some of the, the facts that we talked about together over the last two months as we looked at our life with Jesus, here's just a few of them as they relate to this. You know, through our life with Jesus, we grow in our willingness to join him on mission, right? And for Timothy and for Paul, this was a reality. Despite the fact that it cost them something, they were willing because we grow in our willingness to join him on mission the more we lean into our life with Jesus. Our lives, we realize that our life with Jesus, our lives are no longer about us. They're not. Now Christ lives his life through us. It's now about him and his life, not me and my life any longer. It's about his glory and not ours. It's about what's important to him because what's important to him, the more we lean in in our life with Jesus, what's important to him becomes what's important to us. And remember, who is God and what's important to him? He's the one who was willing to send his son to take on human flesh, to humble himself to that degree, and, yet, and even be willing to die on a cross to pay the price for limited human beings, creatures who rebelled against him even though he was not appreciated by many in his day. I mean, that's amazing when you think about that. That's the God we serve. And he had to have done it because it was important to him to rescue the lost. And the things that are important to him become more and more important to us the more we dig in in our life with Jesus. In life, we could have a narrow view or we could have a broad view. And I'll be honest, our default position, myself included, is on the narrow view, what's right in front of you. For instance, the, the narrow view focuses on the here and now. It focuses on today. It focuses on me and my family. It focuses on work and play and relationships and challenges and traumas and happiness now as they relate to me and my family. I can only see what's right in front of me. That's the narrow view. And that is typically the view that all of us have as we go through life. The things we do, where we spend our time, where we spend our money, where we spend our energy, where we spend our thoughts, where we devote ourselves. It's the narrow view. It's those things that matter to me and mine here and now or in the not too distant future. That's how we live. But there's also a broad view. And we're called to the broad view. The broad view focuses on the bigger picture the things that are perhaps beyond ourselves, the things that are more important to the things that we look at in our narrow view. We think about eternity in the broad view. Eternity, who will be there? Who won't be? And how does today impact the hereafter? You know, it's not that in the, big view, in the broad view we don't focus on things now, but we focus on what does now have to do with the future? What can we do today that matters forever? The broad view focuses on them and their families, on evangelism, service, the gospel, God's reputation, sacrificing the small things for the big things, the impact that lasts forever, not just now. And as Christians, we're called to have a broad view, even though we tend to, by default, find ourselves looking at the world through a narrow view. In what ways can we do whatever it takes? In what ways can we be intentional doing things we haven't yet done to build bridges from, our set, from, from where people are to the gospel? How can we establish relationships or strengthen relationships with non-Christians 
so that we can earn the right to be heard and provide an atmosphere where we can have multiple gospel-centered conversations where people have the opportunity to hear and respond to the good news of Jesus. What can we do? You know, I often imagine what it would be like for these seats to be filled. And I know that some of you who've been here for a decade or more have had times when you look out and these seats have been filled. But I'm going to tell you right now, if I look out and see these seats filled one day and they're filled because we took people from the Baptist church or another church in town closed down and we absorbed their people or another church, you know, had a new pastor and they didn't like him and so we we stole a couple of their people and our church is filled i will not rejoice with you i'll be happy for whoever god brings here but i'll tell you what would make would truly delight your pastor if in a year's time we look around and this place has doubled in size but as we look out at the faces in the crowd what we have is people who a year before did not know jesus and here they are new believers in Christ, sitting along our faithful people who are walking alongside them in discipleship. So the question is, do you share that vision? Do you share that dream? Have you largely said, that's not going to happen? You know, our town's diminishing, it's changing, it's not going to happen. But do you believe that God can do that? And if you believe that God can do that, can you trust that God can use you and me to do that? And if you could trust that God could use you and me to do that, in what ways can we do whatever it takes to help make that a reality, knowing the Holy Spirit goes with us and does the work in and through us? Here's some bad plans that Christians often make when it comes to the gospel and sharing the gospel. Ready? Here's some bad plans. And I feel bad for you already or me if I, these, these, these chafe because we've done these Here's some bad plans Christian often make. Wait for lost people to come to you and ask you about Jesus. Christians do this all the time. Guess what? How many times has that happened so far? That doesn't often happen. Wait for lost people to come to church on their own. They're not coming. Uh, expect lost people to recognize something about you that they don't have and ask you about it. That's the number one thing I get offered when I ask, what are you doing about the lost? Well, I live my best life. I try to put God on display, and I'm waiting for people to ask me about what's different about your life. Friends, I know, I know I'm not perfect, but that just doesn't happen in my life. If that's happening for you, praise God. I don't think any of us are good enough that we could just somehow radiate enough Jesus that people just catch the gospel and come to church. This doesn't happen, right? These are some of the things that we need to change our thinking on. Some other bad things Christians do. Um, assume that God will reach them by another person or another means. I don't have to say anything. God's got this. He's going to bring somebody else. Maybe God wanted you to. Think that sharing the gospel looks the same for every person doesn't the gospel doesn't change how we proclaim it how what level of investment we have to have in the other person what we need to do to adapt to that person to be able to earn the right to be heard and share the gospel that's different for every person uh, and assume that people are going to be automatically ready to receive the gospel when you present it you know sometimes we proclaim the gospel and somebody doesn't accept it and then we just feel dejected and we don't share the gospel anymore but you realize in the United States, Varda did a poll a number of years ago. It takes nine times of somebody hearing the gospel before they're ready to receive it. 
We live in a secular world with as many worldviews as you could count. Christianity is not the default position. We're talked down upon by society, government, culture. Is it any wonder it takes nine times to proclaim the gospel? So if you share the gospel, they're not receptive. Don't worry, you got eight more times to go before you can get sad about it. We gotta keep going. These are things that bad plans that Christian make, uh, Christians make, bad ways we think of things. We need to change our thinking though, not give up on the mission. Here's the truth of the matter. People are not coming to you. You have to go to them. In fact, this is what Jesus commanded. He never said, I'm going to the Father. Sit tight in Jerusalem. They're going to come to you. Just tell them when they ask. He doesn't say that. Here's what he says. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says that Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's very similar to that Acts 1-8 passage we read just a little bit bit ago. We need to go and be Jesus' witnesses, making disciples intentionally as we go. You know, many people believe other things that are in direct conflict with Christianity. So they're not just blank slates waiting to hear and respond to the gospel. We need to build relationships. We need to earn the right to be heard. We need to ask good questions so we can understand where they're coming from, what they believe and why they believe it. We need to address them where they're at and we need to be able to build bridges from where they're currently at to the gospel so that they could hear it and receive it. You know, and many Christians have... uh, Many Christians have negative view. I'm sorry, many non-Christians have negative views about Christians, right? These are another factors we have to overcome as we're doing this, things we have to be aware of. This is the truth of the matter. Many non-Christians have negative views about Christians. So we need to ask questions like this as we want to do whatever it takes, as we want to adapt, as we want to build inroads in these relationships. How do we dispel these myths and misrepresentations about Christians and Christianity? How do we overcome the trauma that many of these non-Christians have experienced in their past, either from Christians or from churches, or from seeing uh, misperceptions of how Christians mistreat people in culture? Because that's the way we're portrayed. And we have to be willing and ready to dig in and help overcome some of these. Uh, We need to build authentic relationships. We need to lean in uh, in our life with Jesus, and we need to put it on display before others. We need to let them see our victories and our failures and the fact that God's love and grace are present in both situations. We need to tell them about God's love and allow them to experience it in tangible ways. You know, we said this this morning, what are some of the inroads? What are some of the ways we could do whatever it takes? How often have we gone out on a limb and said, hey, is there anything I could pray for you for? And somebody brings up an actual tangible need, you know? Uh, my house is falling apart. I have no child care for my kids. I don't know how I'm going to work. Uh, I can't make my electric pay- payment this month. Those kinds of things. I mean, whatever it is. Think of a tangible thing you've heard. And we answer with this. That's rough. I'll pray for you. You know, some of those things we could step into and not only tell them that God loves them, but demonstrate it through ourselves. Are we willing to do that? As uncomfortable as it might be, are we willing to do whatever it takes? 
Paul and Timothy were definitely willing to do whatever it takes, right, to reach the lost. And God calls us to do whatever it takes to reach the lost. The truth is it will cost us something. It will. It'll cost us something. It will take something from us. It will require us to sacrifice something. It will. It might be time. It might be comfort. It might be money. It might be doing something that we absolutely and utterly dislike. Uh, Josh was telling me when the youth went with Mike on a missions trip uh, a couple years ago to South Carolina, uh, they were painting houses and uh, in a poor area of town. And my boys were, were up on a ladder painting, and there's this wasps, wasp nest there. And they're thinking, I don't want to be here right now. And then they're thinking, well, we need to do this. And they're painting right next to the wasp nest. Trust me, I know my son. I know myself, too. And he probably gets it from me. I would have been down that ladder and across the street at another house. And there was a giant wasp nest there. But he had to finish the task because it meant something to the people that he was ministering to. Right? It might be just something that we really don't like doing. It, might, it may require us getting dirty. It may require us going places that we absolutely don't want to go. It might cost us our reputation. It might cost us our friends. It's going to cost you something. And yet, we're called to do whatever it takes, and we serve a Lord who did whatever it takes to save us. What a privilege to, in turn, put others before ourselves so that they might hear and respond to the gospel. In closing, here's our passage again. Acts 16, 1 through 5. Paul came to Derb and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders of Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. I'm going to say that again. The churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. What was the end result of Paul and Timothy's decision, of their sacrifice? of what they were willing to do. The churches were strengthened and they grew daily in their numbers. Friends, I would be happy with our numbers growing annually. Annually, that's fine. Give us five new believers in this church in a year. And I would be rejoicing, excited. When the Alliance asked me to do the annual report, I'd be like, yep, we had five salvations. We had five baptisms. It's been a good year. I will genuinely be excited to my very core if we would just grow annually in this. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be exciting if there were five new faces who didn't know Jesus a year ago and because of the ministry of God through our people, they know Jesus today. That would be so cool. I'm sorry. So what's the secret? Because we serve this God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loves the lost, and he's all-powerful. So what's, what does it take? It takes people who are willing to do whatever it takes. In our life with Jesus, we must be willing to join him on mission. We must be willing to be all things to all people. We must be willing to put their needs ahead of our own. We must be willing to even change ourselves to enter into a relationship with them instead of expecting them to change themselves to enter into a relationship with us. Friends, I ask you, especially as we get closer to starting a new year, 
as we look at the future of this church, as we remember even how much space we have. It won't be overcrowded. What can we do to reach this town of 20,000 people, most of whom do not know Jesus? Can we together do whatever it takes to build new relationships and proclaim the gospel?